Hello and welcome to another podcast presented by the Physiotherapy Council of New South Wales. Today's podcast is about informed consent. We need to be talking to the patient about the benefits of what we're doing. We need to be talking about the risks of the recommended test or the procedure or the manual therapy or the massage or the stretching, whatever it is that we're doing. And then we need to think about what the alternative options are. A lot of it is about building rapport with our patients, getting the confidence, getting the trust and just being really professional in what we do. And just because we think we would like to do that with someone, ultimately it's the other person's body. And, and you know, we need to make sure they're comfortable and have a say in, in what's being done to their own body. More on informed consent coming up shortly. But first, to introduce our expert panel, your host for this podcast, the President of the New South Wales Physiotherapy Council, Elizabeth Ward. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ward, and we have three guests joining us today for our discussion on informed consent. Tony Andari is the Deputy President of the New South Wales Physiotherapy Council. Tony has experience across the clinical, education and governance areas of physiotherapy and is currently a senior musculoskeletal physiotherapist with New South Wales Health. He's also an educator at Sydney University and also a consultant to Allied Health Clinics. Welcome, Tony. Great to be here, Liz. We've also got Athena Harris-Ingle, who is our legal member on council and is a solicitor who also works as a tribunal member, a mediator and a conciliator. Before becoming a solicitor, Athena worked for 20 years in the healthcare sector, in both clinical roles and in policy development. Athena has extensive experience investigating complaints against healthcare professionals across the spectrum. Welcome to you, Athena. Hello, Liz. And lastly, we have Dr Julie Redfern. She's a Professor of Public Health and was awarded the 2022 New South Wales Woman of Excellence Award. Julie is also a Professorial Fellow at the George Institute for Global Health. She is a member of the World Heart Federation and Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand Scientific Committees. Julie has published over 180 manuscripts and four book chapters and still finds time to be a practising physiotherapist. Thanks for your time today, Julie. Hi, Liz. Looking forward to the chat today. In this podcast, we're exploring how informed consent is obtained in a healthcare setting. And different circumstances exist in different settings. For example, women's health, paediatrics and sports contexts are all quite different. And we want to focus on some of the things practitioners need to be aware of to ensure that they are practising safely. First though, Athena, as we mentioned in your introduction, you're a solicitor and our legal member on council. Can you give us the legal version of what informed consent is? Yes, Liz. In strict terms, consent is an individual's free agreement to participate in an activity. Consent can only be given if it is free, voluntary, without fear, coercion, intimidation or anything else that inhibits free agreement. In healthcare, informed consent can be quite a complex decision-making process, but the principles are fairly straightforward. We will, of course, though, be providing and discussing some examples as we get further into the discussion today. When we're thinking about informed consent in healthcare, it's important to understand also that the individual must give free agreement to participate in the health care and treatment proposed. A person giving informed consent must have decision-making capacity and what this means is that the person understands the choices and facts involved and can also weigh up the consequences 
of the proposed treatment and then communicate their decision to the healthcare practitioner. I should also say that generally I think we all understand that children cannot provide informed consent. It's also important to understand that at any time during healthcare provision, a person who's receiving treatment and care is free to withdraw their informed consent. It's only in emergency situations generally that treatment and care can be provided without consent. It's also important to understand that the law also allows courts and tribunals to make decisions where a person cannot consent or for other reasons in some circumstances. Athena, that's a great start to our discussion today. I think the key things we want to emphasise here from a physio perspective is you mentioned the bit about capacity. So the person needs to be able to not just freely give their informed consent, they need to be capable of giving that consent. And I think children is the, the easy example there. Obviously, a child can't consent on their own. I think the other thing in, in a physiotherapy context is that the consent needs to be specific to whatever we're trying to achieve, whatever we're trying to do. So we've got, you know, physio-specific contexts that maybe we'll get into a little bit later on. But in broad terms, we need to be talking to the patient about the benefits of what we're doing. We need to be talking about the risks of the recommended test or the procedure or the manual therapy or the massage or the stretching, whatever it is that we're doing. And then we need to think about what the alternative options are. So one thing we might be saying to the patient is, you can choose A and there might be a risk of X, Y and Z, maybe potential increase in pain, but that might speed up the recovery. Or would you prefer to choose B, which is a slower sort of recovery time with less risk involved, and then leaving that decision up to the patient. The patient needs to make that decision being aware of the material risks that are involved. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Tony. And being a physiotherapist means we have both unique and important responsibilities regarding our patients. Often as physiotherapists, we're participating in things such as physical touching, undressing, and sometimes our patients are in pain or may even be uncomfortable with some of the treatments that we're, we're doing with them. And a couple of examples of that might be, you know, when someone is in pain, when we're treating their knee, they might feel uncertain and so consent becomes really important about how to manage that pain or what that is all about. Or there might be other examples. We may be treating someone's knee pain by conducting manual therapy on their back, for example, and that can be confronting and so consent needs to consider those factors. So basically, you know, I think it'll be good to discuss some of these contextual issues as what it's like to be a physiotherapist and how we do need to be cautious and careful regarding our consent and seek that in a suitable way, uh, as Athena has also alluded to, where the patients really understand what we're doing, why, and that they agree to those things. On that point, let's talk about the different ways we can obtain consent. Athena, can you start by explaining what implied informed consent is? When we give implied informed consent, we do it by our conduct. And so an example of this can be when perhaps I go to see my physiotherapist and the physiotherapist says, oh, well, are you ready to start? And, and then I hop up on the treatment table. That's a form of implied consent. Uh, it's also important to remember, though, that generally uh, consent needs to be provided in, in writing and documented. 
Yeah, I think in a, in a practical sense, I think verbal consent should be enough in most cases, uh, unless you're into a, a high risk area. We mentioned women's health, you know, something like dry needling, if you're into those areas where potentially the risks aren't understood in a quick 30 second conversation, maybe we need to have something written down. But I think verbal consent is enough. I think the other thing that I see often with the, the students that I teach is, is getting consent for every little detailed part of the examination. So I'm about to move your little finger, I'm about to move your ring finger, I'm about to move your index finger, and it's too much. It ends up being overbearing on the patient. So I think we need to put it in context and say, what are we getting consent for? We're going to do some movements of your wrist and your hand. Is that okay with you? Patient says, yep, let's go. And then that's enough for the subsequent movements as well. And until we're doing something that's more invasive, we don't need to keep checking along the way for each individual procedure or test or or therapy, except if it's going to cause extra pain, if it's going to be getting closer to someone's more sensitive areas or involves more undressing or, you know, when something changes, I think we should get more consent. I think that's exactly right, Tony. I think that if we're trying to obtain consent at every particular point of an interaction. It's hard for the client to actually understand when they've been giving new information, they may need to make a new decision about whether they want to continue. So it can be very confusing if people are giving too much information. Yeah, I think the other thing with that, Athena, is it also interrupts building that relationship with the patient, building rapport, being natural with your communication. If every two seconds I'm saying, is it okay if I do X? Is it okay? It it actually projects a lack of confidence. So we're not trying to say that for every single statement you need to finish with that consenting type question. We need to be saying it needs to be practically applied for that physio session. As you mentioned, Tony, earlier, it's about material risk. It's about important things that a person would want to be informed about and understand before you move on to a different sort of approach to treatment. And also, I work with a lot of orthopaedic surgeons, so I'm doing a lot of post-op care. And often when they come in and I've done the initial assessment, I'll say to them, Now I'm going to take your dressings down, I'm going to clean and redress your wounds and I'm going to make you a splint, is that okay? So by obtaining that consent, you know that you're ready to proceed with the treatment. Look, I I think all of those things are really important and really valuable advice for for the physiotherapists that are listening today. Um, But one specific area that I wanted to touch on was parental consent. So as Athena already mentioned at at the start of this, children cannot consent and will need a parent or carer to provide consent for them. Of course, there is some, you know, flexibility when it comes to adolescents who might be 16 to 18 year olds. and, And in that case, it depends. I think a good example that comes to mind for me might be in the sporting context, for example, where, say, a 15-year-old child has got a sporting injury and they're, they're seeing their physiotherapist. And perhaps that physiotherapist takes it upon themselves to share that medical information with a coach. If that was given without parental consent, that could be somewhat problematic and could extend to other issues, for example, financial and participation issues for that child. So I think, you know, that's one example where as a physiotherapist, we can't assume that we need to interact and we can share that medical information with a coach. And working in sport does not give implied consent that coaches um, can be provided medical information. It's important to make sure that parents and the child consent and that that is actually clear and documented in the medical records. And Tony, I was wondering if you can comment on cervical manipulation and the consent around that. Yeah, so look, I've got to 
give a disclaimer. I'm not. I'm not trained in cervical manipulation, other than training in the early part of my career. So I wouldn't do cervical manipulations personally in, in my clinical practice. But again, in terms of the material risk that Athena was mentioning before, well, if you want to be alarmist, th- there's a risk of death with cervical manipulation. You know, so it might be one in ten thousand risk of stroke. It might be a bit more than that for for death. I think as a patient, you'd want to know that, and you'd want to know: is there an alternative? One in ten thousand is very small, but if there's an alternative that sounds better to me as the patient, well, maybe I, I actually going to gravitate towards that alternative. So I think that's an example where the consent should be written down because of the claims that have come out against physios and chiropractors and other professionals in the past because of adverse events, because they're known risks. We know what they are. We know the sort of cost to that treatment. It should be something that's written down. The patient should then be able to be given a chance to actually read through what those risks are and actually make a decision and not be rushed through that decision. And if I was using cervical manipulation, then I'd be making sure that the patient had signed that form and that was kept in the medical record as well. Yes, I think it's a good point that you make there, Tony. In areas where there is material risk, it can be very helpful if you've got information sheets Even drawing diagrams and really making sure that the person who's going to receive the treatment from you understands exactly what the risks are and the benefits of the proposed treatment. Yeah, so add to that uh, concept of context that both Tony and Athena have already alluded to and and the early comments I was making about parental consent, it's important to note that in some circumstances, adults do not actually have the capacity to provide informed consent. And in such a case, a substitute decision maker can actually provide such consent. Is that right, Athena? It is, Julie. And it's probably worthwhile referring to the code of conduct here, because in the code on page six, it does make reference to substitute decision makers and mentions that substitute decision makers for patients who do not have capacity to make their own decisions can include not only parents but guardians or a person nominated by the patient or a legally appointed decision maker. And I can think of examples of adults no longer having capacity, sadly after a a stroke or a, a very catastrophic accident where they've been brain injured, or some people who live with an enduring disability are never able to provide informed consent. I'd like to just move on to talking about the length of consent. How long do you think the consent is valid for? Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. And again, I think context is important, as we've already alluded to. But essentially, consent remains valid until the patient withdraws it, or if if something materially changes in terms of the treatment or for the patient. So we need to take care in, in monitoring and managing what we're doing over time. But as we do our assessments and we might want to divert our treatment or change our treatment, that may require a change in consent. But essentially, if we're continuing on, the patient's continuing on with nothing changing, then essentially it remains valid. Yeah, I think the other key thing to note here is is that each session I would be getting the consent independent of the previous session. So I don't think it's enough to say, well, in our previous session we did X, Y and Z, therefore this time I'm going to assume that it's okay because the circumstances may have changed. There might be more pain, the person might be complaining about more pain, the movement pattern might be slightly different, the risks may have changed, the benefits may have changed and I think we need to go through those during each session. 
Tony, I think it's also important because sometimes a patient's satisfaction may have changed since the last treatment and so it's important to obtain consent and understanding any issues that might have arisen uh, apart from those that you've just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think the other thing that might have changed is things might be different to what they were last time. Another example we've seen of that, Tony, is when you see a change in therapists. So, you know, it's important if you're picking up, you know, you're filling in for someone else that, that had already treated the patient, doing those particular treatments, that you get a new consent as the new therapist and not assume that other consent is valid. So that's another nuance on the, on the change in treatment or perhaps change in therapist. And make sure you note that at the start of the treatment as well. You know, it might just be that the physiotherapist is ill and another physiotherapist has had to take over at short notice or if they're on holiday as well, you do need to note that the patient consents to that change of therapist. We've talked about that a couple of times in terms of noting it and I think the key message here is, is that if you have gotten that informed consent, you've gone through those risks, you've gone through the benefits, then noting what you actually discussed is really important as well. Well, you made some great points there, Tony, and that leads us into our discussion about documentation. It's very important to document the consent process and when the consent has been given. Athena, from a legal perspective, this is very important for practitioners, isn't it? It's really important that informed consent be documented. There is an expectation that practitioners always note down that they've obtained informed consent. And as Tony just mentioned, sometimes it's important to put in additional information about what steps were taken because you need to be able to legally rely on that documentation. So if it's complex, if there's issues, then I'd be recommending that there be some documentation, a little more than just that consent was obtained so that if one looks at those notes, one gets a feeling and a complete understanding of what went on in those discussions. Yeah, I think it's a really valid point that we can't just simply tick a box or, for example, in our new software systems that we have available, just, you know, click on something using our mouse to say, yes, they've provided consent. We need to explain and document that 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 information was communicated with the patient, they understood what that actually meant for them, and that there's a clear sort of agreement that everyone's happy. You know, an example could be, again, where the patient might have a knee problem or a knee pain, but it's actually, as we know as physiotherapists, it may be coming, for example, from their lower back. And that might be the area that we end up, you know, trying to treat them in terms of on the plinth. And as you alluded to, Athena, you know, using a diagram in a circumstance like that and documenting that diagram that you explained to the patient, even though it's a knee problem, that you were going to have them on the plinth and doing X, Y and Z with their back was going to be helpful and why. I think that's a really good practical advice um, and helps you know have that clear documentation that you you explained it clearly and that the patient understood um, and had the opportunity to ask questions and you can actually even say to the patient is that all okay and do you understand and do you have any further questions I think that's a really important part of all of this and the documentation. A lot of it's due to education education is key so Tony do you want to talk to us more about that? Yeah, I think, Liz, I think we all have our go-to explanations. We all have our pamphlets or our our education sheets or we might have ways of explaining things. I think the key thing here is is if we're talking about documentation is if we've got concerns that maybe the, the patient hasn't understood what we're going through, then we need to be mindful of that. If 
it looks like the patient has understood, but you've just got a feeling that maybe they're a little bit uncomfortable. I think we need to document those sort of things. And same with any vulnerableness that we've picked up from the patient. It might just be a feeling, so there's nothing that's been said, but you just sort of document. And then as Athena said, you can then come back to those notes later on, and it might be years later on, and say, oh, okay, there were some concerns during that session that maybe the patient didn't understand everything. That's why I didn't go through with X, Y, and Z at that time. And it's important once you get that consent that you ask them, have you got any questions that you want to ask me? So that they do get that opportunity to ask questions if they're unsure about anything. I think we all agree that those consent forms which are very, very vague and don't really address any specific treatments or therapeutic approaches are probably not that useful. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and they also don't show that the person has understood what they've read It's very easy to sign a form, but if they haven't understood it, well, then that doesn't count. Athena, what do you think about culture and nonverbal responses? So sometimes a shake of the head or a nod of the head can mean two different things in different cultural, you know, circumstances. So what's your thoughts on things like that? Yes, I'm I'm always in my legal practice. I'm always very careful when I'm working with people from other communities other than English-speaking communities and I take care to make sure that I actually understand and I'd be documenting that if I was a healthcare practitioner and and confirming definitely that the person understands because there can be misunderstandings with non-verbal communication. Mm. I think, you know, we have to try and be mindful not to become desensitised to these types of important issues because after we've been working, you know, day after day, year after year, we can have a a small risk of becoming complacent because we're comfortable, but we've always got to be mindful of that back to the patient, make sure they understood the documentation. So now we come to that hoary topic of financial consent. It's something that physios really don't like to um, often discuss, but one of the sources of regular complaints that come before the council is around financial consent. Patients who feel that they weren't properly informed about the cost of their treatment, for example. Julie, how should we handle financial consent? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question and, uh, you know, we really do need to be mindful of things. So, for example, we don't want a situation where we've already put a cast on a patient for for their treatment and then they go out to the front desk and be given a bill for several hundred dollars that perhaps they can't afford. So we really do need to kind of talk about that. Is that going to work and how much it's going to cost, what that means, how long for or how many changes or things like that and make sure that that's going to be viable for the patient. And as a good therapist, you know, if there are financial issues, then try to unpack how that might be feasible for them. Other examples can be a walking frame. It's all well and good for us to say we think you should have X or Y or Z walking frame, but we really need to make sure not only that is suitable for the patient's home and context, but that they can actually afford that particular type. And we may need to be flexible and understand what the patient's financial situation is and potentially explore some options to help support them in affording the treatments that we think are best. Yeah, that's very true. And sometimes we do have to adjust our expectations of how often the patient needs treatment based on their financial ability to afford that treatment. And we do need to sort of make those concessions. We need to make sure that they're given an option and can change their mind or withdraw their consent at any time. So just remember that consent can only be given if it's free and voluntary without fear, coercion, intimidation or anything else that inhibits free agreement. We have to make sure that they don't feel that they have to consent in certain situations. 
Yeah, I think it links nicely, Liz, to the discussion we had a little bit earlier and saying that we don't want to force the person into one option. So what are the alternatives? If there is a financial issue there, if we're sensing some uncomfortableness from the patient, well, then what are the alternatives? And maybe we give an option A, we give an option B, and we give an option C. Option A might be intensive therapy. Here's the outcome we would expect with that. Option B might be less intensive. Option C might be a very hands-off, one review every couple of weeks type of therapy. And then what we're expecting the benefits and the risks for that to be as well. So giving people alternatives. I think in terms of financial consent, from my point of view, I think ideally all of this, as Julie said a bit earlier, would be explained before the patient's even committed to what they're doing. So before the cast materials have been prepared, if we're using Julie's example, before we're starting to cut off the previous cast, before we've set everything up, here's the cost here's the alternative to this cost today, here are your other options, what would you like to do? And if the patient says, no, no, I really need this done today, well, then you get everything ready from there. So it's not assumed that they're just going to say yes, 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 because to me that could be seen as a bit of a, a form of pressure on the patient to consent. If they're sitting in the room and you've got everything ready and they're sitting there and you say, it's going to cost this much, it's very hard from that vulnerable perspective for them to withdraw that consent at that stage. This is an area where... In the council, we often see complaints around financial consent or patients alleging that, that they were pressured into taking or accepting a certain course of treatment. So it is, as everyone's mentioned, important to be mindful of providing options and alternatives and explaining what impact that's going to have on recovery for the person. Well, let's talk more about some of the complaints to council that we come across and some of the areas where physiotherapists can find themselves in trouble. Tony, can you elaborate on some of the more personal aspects around informed consent? Yeah, I think it's not going to be a surprise to people who are listening to this. As physios, I think in the physio council, we're getting complaints around touch. We're getting complaints around, you know, people not expecting to be touched in certain areas and being touched in those areas. We're getting complaints around people not explaining why they have to touch people in certain areas. So Julie gave an example before about the lower back and the knee. Well, let's flip that around and think of the groin area and the knee. So going up into, you know, the groin muscles or going up into the abdominal muscles. You know, all those areas are around, you know, people's private areas and they're very sensitive areas. So I think we need to explain, we need to be really clear about why we recommend this course of assessment or this course of treatment and then we need to bring the patient along with us and go with the next steps when they're ready for those next steps. The other thing that goes with that is if we need to expose an area of the body, you know, I think elbows and wrists are easy, but what about when we get to shoulders and backs and hips and groin areas again, those sort of things. Do we need to expose that area? Are there alternatives? Could we leave the patient's clothes on for this treatment, for this part of the treatment? Or is it actually a necessary part of treatment? Is it going to be a better option for them to disrobe? And then what options have we got? Have we got shorts? Have we got gowns? Have we got towels? What parts are we happy to, you know, not compromise on in terms of, you know, we can completely cover this area, but we'd only need to expose this little area here or here? And checking the patient's comfort levels with those explanations. And Tony, in terms of the area around removing clothes and clothing... We've had a number of complaints in that area and I think we've had many discussions about that. It's not always necessary that the practitioner or even 
probably recommended that the practitioner removes clothing. Perhaps they can ask the patient to do it. Would you agree? I would agree. And I think if we can give them that power to be in control of that situation as much as possible, I think that's going to be a winning strategy. And it seems to me that we've seen both male and female clients, patients complaining about when underpants or undergarments are being pulled down by the practitioner and they felt they weren't properly informed that that was going to occur. Yeah as well as, of course, in female patients, bras been undone. So they seem to be areas of very particular sensitivity that the practitioner should be aware of. Yeah, and also specifically for males, there's lots of techniques in sort of the area that I practice in musculoskeletal physio where when you look at the book, when you go to the professional development courses, the techniques are being done in a way where the male is very close to the patient in a very sensitive area. And so I think we need to be aware of that and sort of say, is there an alternative way for us to do this? Could we put some sort of barrier between us? But also, let's explain what we're going to do to the patient and then it makes it completely fine if we've explained, here's what I'm going to be, here's where you're going to be, here's why I'd like to be in that position. Is that okay with you? Happy to do that. The patient, if you sense some uncomfortableness, I keep bringing that word up, uncomfortableness, but if you sense some uncomfortableness, well then change strategy, give an option B, give an option C, and then see what works for the patient in that context. I think the other thing is, is and we mentioned it a bit earlier, is parents being present for sessions as well. So we've mentioned these sensitive areas. I think it gets worse when you're talking about it in a child context as well. So we need to be mindful of that. Again, in a busy clinic, you're probably not thinking, oh, it's this is only a child in front of me. You're probably thinking, in Julie's examples, he's a really good kid in terms of their sporting ability, but we need to remember they still are just a child and we need to make sure that we're doing the right things and then having the parents there can make sure that everybody's comfortable with what we're doing. And I think we need to explain to the parents when they're booking in that they need to be with the child for that treatment because often a parent's busy and they'll drop the child off at physio and then go and take another child to another sports training or something like that. And we need to explain that early that we really want the, the parent to be there for that treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And Julie, just because consent was granted during a patient's last treatment, That doesn't mean that consent is ongoing, does it? No, and I mean, I think we did touch on that a little bit earlier where it is good to check in with that, you know, at the beginning of each treatment or when we're doing something slightly different or when we're picking up a patient from a different therapist and and examples like that. I think for me, some of this that, that Tony's really alluded to, a lot of it is about, you know, building rapport with our patients, getting the confidence, getting the trust and just being really professional in what we do. And just because we think we would like to do that with someone, ultimately it's the other person's body. And, and you know, we need to make sure they're comfortable and have a say in, in what's being done to their own body. But I think taking it slow, building rapport and, you know, just building trust, I think is really important. And a change in therapist can be somewhere where that could be problematic. And I think we've, we've seen also from time to time in complaints that the council receives that some people can be dissatisfied by what they see as a lack of progress in, in their recovery or in the treatment's benefits. And so I think we've already mentioned that it's important probably to set those expectations early. I mean, communication is everything, right? I think in the, in this case, communication, how we do it, how we all understand each other is probably fundamental here. Yeah, and occasionally we also see complaints where people, of course, as we all do, go out and speak to others about what happened to them in a similar circumstance and the scenario and outcomes may have been completely different. Uh, so it's important that when we're having conversations with patients that 
that we check in that they don't have any concerns, as Tony and I think Julie and Liz have already mentioned. And as much as I hate to say it, I think males need to be particularly careful here. Those early in their career and late in their career are the ones that we see the most complaints around. But it's something as simple as putting a towel between yourself as a practitioner and the patient can make all the difference in how that patient perceives you and how comfortable they feel in the treatment. And I think keeping in with our previous discussion is even just offering that as an option. Would you be more comfortable if we put a towel or a pillow here, here or here? Mm. Or would you prefer to do it this other way? Giving as much power to the client or to the patient as as possible. So in wrapping up our focus on informed consent, Athena, what would you recommend for practitioners? As we've already mentioned, it's a complex topic, but really common sense, a common sense approach is probably the one that I recommend. I do think that all physiotherapists really should read the Code of Conduct. It's a very good starting point. In particular, just revisiting the areas around communication, um, around substitute decision makers. I think it goes without saying that physiotherapists have to be respectful, and I think that It's part of dealing with patients or managing patient care that we understand that people have different expectations and approaches and needs and some people may be more vulnerable than others and also less able to express their concerns or reservations. So it's very key to make information that you think is important and that is, particularly if it's of material risk, to be accessible to patients. We all have to, in our daily work, adjust our conversation to meet the needs of the particular individuals that we're dealing with and provide a supportive environment. It's also very important, I think, to understand that what we call a trauma-informed approach to care can be very helpful, and that's particularly useful if there's a power imbalance or the person has had to live with trauma in the past or some mental health challenges or other disappointments and in terms of their recovery, then it's very important to understand that people recovering from trauma often aren't in the position to talk about their discomfort or risk and also to express dissatisfaction. So as we've already discussed at length, written consent is important and there may be some situations where interpreters really are required for significant procedures and treatments. I think you've raised a good point there, Athena. I think it's really problematic if there are language issues. I think, you know, from from my experience in the public system, we we have a policy where you need to be using an interpreter even for for low-risk sort of procedures or low-risk assessments, and I think that's really helpful. But I think that might not be possible for everyone. I think the key thing here is, is if there's a barrier, if there's impediment, to getting good informed consent as we've discussed today, then I think we need to be clear about that, not pretend like it's not there. So if there are language issues, let's document there that there are some language issues. Let's talk to the person about the fact that it looks like there's some language issues. What would you like to do about it? Mm. And from time to time, of course, practitioners will have to work with people who are, for example, non-verbal or who are recovering from conditions where their communication is not what it was. So that also needs particular care and strategies to make sure that the person can can convey to you in the way that they're able to, their discomfort or, or any concerns they have and perhaps you can use strategies to explore options about risk with them and benefits as well. 
Yeah, I mean, what a great discussion and how important for all the, the physiotherapists out there. You know, it's really important that we don't become desensitised. So I think we need to remember and be mindful of all these issues with every patient, every day, every treatment. But, you know, we need to be confident. We really do that the patient has actually understood the risk and understood the conversation. We've got that good communication. I think Tony's given some excellent examples about that. But then also confirming that the patient has actually understood, to your point, Athena, sort of getting that confirmation that, yes, I do understand yes, I'm okay with it and, and you know, I, I don't have any questions or I have these questions before we proceed. So I think it is about rapport and it is about communication. And if the patient is uncomfortable actually providing consent for a particular treatment or a particular reason, it's important we don't forget that we can't actually do the treatment or share their medical information if we actually don't have that consent. I think, you know, it's important this topic doesn't become the elephant in the room and, and we need to remind ourselves of that. Our profession is about helping and supporting people and, you know, we need to make sure that people understand what we're doing and why and they're okay and comfortable in an agreement with all of that. And I think you raised an important point, Julie, actually about consenting to release information. So that's another area that we need to ensure, and often it's done at the very start of treatment, the patient needs to consent who they're happy for you to discuss their treatment with. So whether it's the GP, the treating specialist or the insurer, we need to make sure that we obtain that consent. And look, just to finalise today's session... I think it's important that patients have the freedom to withdraw their consent at any time and that documentation is so important for their assessment, their treatment and their financial consent. I think one of the things that Athena raised was around the code of conduct and some physiotherapists may not be sure where to find that. So you just need to put code of conduct into the APRA website and it will come up. And there's one common code now that covers at least 10 of the different health professions. So finally, remember that if it isn't written down, it didn't happen. I'd like to thank our special guest today, firstly, Tony Andari. Thank you very much, Liz. And thank you to Athena Harris-Ingle. It's been a real pleasure, Liz. And to Dr Julie Redfern. Thanks, Liz. It's been great. I'm Elizabeth Ward. I'm President of the Physiotherapy Council of New South Wales. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to our special focus on informed consent. For more information on any of the content in this podcast, you can access various resources by clicking on the description link located right here on your podcast player. Or you can contact the Physiotherapy Council of New South Wales via their website, physiotherapycouncil.nsw.gov.au. Reference to any specific views, information or opinions does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the Physiotherapy Council of New South Wales. The views, information or opinions expressed by individuals in podcast episodes are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Council. The Council does its best to ensure information is complete, relevant and up-to-date but is not responsible for verifying the accuracy of all information shared by individuals. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. The Physiotherapy Council of New South Wales acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.